Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, the first novel that was ever read to me was entitled The Secret Garden. It was written by Francis Burnett in 1910. Many of you are familiar with the novel or have at least seen uh, one of the many movie versions of the book. And there are many memorable characters in the novel, and all of them, at least at the beginning of the novel, are significantly damaged by the cruelties of life. Uh, there is, of course, the main character named Mary, who is uh, a rather angry, petulant young woman, spoiled rotten, uh, growing up within the upper-class British society of India at that time. And very sadly, her parents are killed by cholera. And uh, after their death, she is taken (laughs) to England to live with her reclusive uncle, who is very wealthy and lives in a very large manor house on a very large piece of property. And his name is Archibald Craven. He himself is also quite damaged because very early on in his uh, happy marriage, his wife unexpectedly died, and he's lived a depressed, reclusive life ever since. And he himself has a very troubled son that he has locked away in a basement corridor. And essentially the son is, is ill and screams all the time, and people think the house is haunted because they hear this voice echoing through the hallways. And the whole book is about how people who are desperately and deeply sick or wounded can get well. And the thing that makes them well is the discovery of this garden. Mary, out of her own boredom, uh, walks around the moors in the property of the manor house and discovers a walled-off garden with a locked door. And she discovers later why the garden was locked and then seemingly forgotten. And it had to do with the fact that Mr. Craven, the lord of the manor, his wife had a catastrophic fall from a tree in that garden. She tragically died and he locked up this place forever. Well, eventually, this very wounded, grieving family makes their way back into that garden and they discover true healing and restoration. Uh, Well, today is Rogation Sunday. It's really, in a way, at least from our lessons perspective, all about gardens. And so I want to speak, actually, about the whole Bible today, the story of the whole Bible from the perspective of gardening. Yes, you heard me right. Because God's big purpose in all of Scripture is not just to interact with, rescue, and alter individuals or nations, but also to deal with all of creation, that has gone awry, all of creation that is groaning for redemption. And so I'm going to be spending time in three different gardens tonight. Uh, I'm going to talk about the former garden, the funeral garden, and the future garden, and their corresponding Bible lessons. So I'd like to uh, begin at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis and check out our former garden. So if you would take up your bulletin and open it to the Genesis passage, I'd like to read from the eighth verse of the second chapter. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. 
And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So this is the the Bible's version of our origin story. And what's fascinating is that it says human beings have their origin, not in caves, not in rough mountainous places, not in desert landscapes, but in a cultivated place that human beings are located by God, find their origin in God in a cultivated place in a garden. Now, what is a garden? A garden is a cultivated place that is both beautiful and practical. That's what a garden is. It is beautiful and it is practical. Many of you in this room understand what I mean, but let me define the terms a little bit. Um, Gardens are beautiful because they, by their very nature and design, have to be cultivated, colorful, and landscaped. They're places of artistry. This is stereotypical. But because I'm a guy, I don't necessarily notice like the artistry of gardens right away, but I have a wife and she points them out to me. But even, uh, but I saw one garden one time that impressed me to the point where my jaw dropped and it was in Salzburg, Austria. Uh, some of you may have been there. That's where they filmed at least a portion of The Sound of Music. And there's a massive garden near the cathedral there. And everything is immaculate. And all of the color schemes work together beautifully. They have, of course... Uh, these beautiful poppy flowers, and they have orchids, and they have Edelweiss, uh, all all working together, and and all the the stonework and everything exists to augment the natural organic beauty of the flowers that grow there, and nothing is out of place. It was more impressive to me than the Sistine Chapel. So a a garden is a beautiful place, but a garden is often uh, a practical place as well, because in order for a garden to be a garden, you need structure, you need boundaries. You need to know when the garden begins and when the garden ends. You have to have pathways through the garden, careful planning in the garden. And Eden's garden uh, has also a very practical edge in the sense that it provides food or sustenance to people. It was sort of an orchard garden, if you will. And that's why the Genesis description of this garden exalts both beauty and practicality because it says that the trees were pleasing to the eye, beautiful, and good for food, practical. And so there was a harmony between right brain and left brain, between that which was beautiful and that which was practical. And within this garden of beauty and practicality, there were two sacramental trees, two trees that gave more than beauty and practical goods. These two trees gave life or death, depending on the tree. The tree of life, of course, produces life. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil offers the chance for death. For a variety of complicated reasons I don't have time to go into tonight, we hungered for death rather than life, and that's what we got. And after the fall, the world increases in savagery, and gardens begin to be thwarted. Within the fall narrative, within the oracles that are spoken against the serpent, against the man, and against the woman, there's also this implicit curse that befalls the created order because now there will be thorns that grow to choke out the good life of gardens. Creation begins to erode or sometimes to war, to even war against us. And so a creation can become a savage place. And then this garden is even barricaded by savagery. You may remember in the passage where it says that the, the garden is guarded by violence and fire, right? The flaming sword of the cherubim that keeps us away. And so the open garden in Genesis becomes a secret garden, one that is elusive, one that we do not have access to any longer. Um, but it's not entirely gone from our consciousness 
You know, I find it interesting that almost everyone who is alive and who has uh, even a modicum of self-awareness or the awareness of the suffering of others very clearly realizes that something is desperately wrong, not only with the world, but with the self. Here's my question. How do we know that it's wrong? Why would we even categorize it that way? After all, if wrongness is all that we've ever experienced and all that we come to expect, that is, we expect relationships to fall apart. We expect people to get sick. We expect people to die. We expect people to betray us sometimes. That all we're used to is things falling apart. And yet we see that as, in some ways, an injustice. Why do we see it as an injustice if it's all we've ever known? Wouldn't it be all that we expect? Well, no, because deep within the subconscious memory of humanity, there stands this ideal, this archetype, this realm of harmony, of beauty and practicality uh, symbiotically growing together. And it is against that very Edenic memory that we contrast our current experiences. And we know something is out of accord and out of design because we in some ways still remember subconsciously of the original design. We feel out of sorts because we are out of sorts, because we are out of our home. And this is why we long for that Edenic harmony in some form. And we experience it in little ways, but the Edenic energy can sometimes be felt when maybe you are actively involved in all of your adult children's lives and they're all still talking to you. That's a little bit of Eden. Or when your work life is right now mostly fulfilling and not life killing. That's a little bit of Eden. Or when you're actually respected by your spouse who doesn't constantly talk over you. That's a little bit of Eden. Or when you don't have an uncontrolled pill addiction. Or when you don't have a mid-career collapse into panic attacks. A little bit of Eden. But we long for more of that. We long for a place of safety and harmony and peace and tranquility that was located in the former garden. Well, that's the former garden. And I want to now move to the funeral garden, which is really the centerpiece of the scripture, this funeral garden. Now open your bulletins to John's gospel. Because in John's gospel, he describes Jesus's death and resurrection, but not only the events of the death and resurrection, but the placement of the death and resurrection. And he mentions garden imagery in this passage two times. Now, John is a, he's just a linguistic artist, and of course a poet, but he uh, says nothing, writes nothing by accident. The first instance of this garden language comes in chapter 19, verse 41, where the text reads, Now in the place where he, Jesus, was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. I think it's really important that John focuses us now twice on the fact that Jesus was killed in a garden or in the vicinity of a garden. Now, that isn't often how I picture it and not how it's portrayed in movies. When, whenever the, per, the crucifixion is either portrayed or just thought of in my mind, I picture Utah or Nevada, <laughs> that it's just sandy and stony and certainly nothing ever grows there. No, in fact, we see that Jesus dies in or near a place of rich organic growth. Now, I think it is very fascinating, and I want to spend a moment here to say that it's, that it's important that the center 
of Christian iconography or the central Christian symbol is a dead tree in a garden. That's what a cross is, you know. A cross is a dead tree. It's cut down, killed, and carved up, and then relentlessly replanted. Not so that it will grow again, but so that it can kill again and again and again. Various victims. The cross becomes a lethal tree that enacts lethality. I think it's also important to note that the New Testament calls the cross a tree three different times. Jesus dies on a dead tree while thorns, a reminder of the Genesis curse, wrap around his skull. So he is crowned, not with many crowns, but a single one. And the crown happens to be uh, constituted of the very thing that thwarts humanity's existence within a fallen world. In early Christian iconography, they really paid attention to this. And that's why uh, in, in some Christian symbolism, Jesus in his crucifixion is displayed as being nailed to the tree of life in Genesis. If you go, for example, to St. Paul's Cathedral in London, there's, there are a bunch of fantastic mosaics, you know, designed by somebody, but ordered by Christopher Wren. And one of them has, uh, has Christ crucified in the lush garden of Eden, leaves growing all over his cross, right? It's trying to connect two ideas. The one is the most horrific, abusive, death-oriented event that has ever occurred, and the source of life, vitality, and everlastingness. Connected. Same idea uh, happens to us linguistically every year when we call it Good Friday, right? It's the worst possible day and the best possible day combined together. Well, that's where Jesus was crucified, in a garden, near a garden, on the tree of life, so to speak. Um, So... John wants us to know that Jesus died near a garden, was buried near a garden. And then there's a second instance of garden imagery. This is verse 15 in John's gospel. Supposing him, Jesus, to be the gardener, Mary said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him. Now, Jesus' funeral occurs in a garden. Now, that's not unusual. Even now, uh, graveyards are landscaped, curated, very often beautiful places. But Mary makes a symbolic mistake, a symbolic error. She perceives Jesus, the risen Jesus, as the graveyard gardener, as the curator. I call it a symbolic error because... You, you know by now, even if you don't know the original uh, Old Testament text, you know via the sermon that Adam was designed, was made to be a gardener. That was his vocation. And the New Testament frequently calls Jesus the second Adam. And here we have the second Adam being mistaken in a garden uh, to be the gardener of that garden. And I think in this symbolic error, we glimpse part of the meaning of Jesus's resurrection, that a new gardener rises to recultivate the world, causing life to spring from death. And Jesus's gardener uh, status is foreshadowed in his own parables. You may know that as Jesus uh, went about telling parables, he either posits God or himself as this farmer character who goes about the world sowing seeds or cultivating plants, uh, planting trees, so that the world is populated with the kingdom of God. He positions himself in that way. And now at the very tail end of his earthly ministry, he's seen that way. He's the gardener of a new creation. Uh, And so that's the former garden, the funeral garden in which we see new life spring from death. And lastly, the future garden, 
This comes from the end of the Bible, the very last page, you know, other than the map section. Uh, Revelation 22. Verse 2, also on the other side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. It's interesting. The Bible does not conclude with a city necessarily, nor with a garden necessarily, but with a hybrid of the two. The Bible concludes with a garden city. Uh, with two ideas being brought together, that is cultivation and civilization. But now they grow together harmoniously. And notice the tree does something new. The tree of life not only offers uh, fruit in its season for an eternal life, it also offers something through the leaves for the healing of the nations. The original tree offers sustenance. The new tree of life offers sustenance and healing. Why? Because the Bible is a long book with a long memory, and before Revelation 22, it's pretty bleak for a long time. And there's a lot that needs cured in you, and a lot that needs cured in me, and cured in, uh, in, in the nations of the world, and in the nature of the world. Uh, and so this new tree produces that kind of healing. And I want you to notice that there are two notable absences from this garden city. Uh, there is no satanic predator uh, to put it in a rather cute way, uh, uh, that satanic predator has been cooked by now. Um, so he's not there. And there's no death tree. There's no tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Instead, we only have the original tree of life now with a more robust capacity. And so what's interesting then is that the final scene of Revelation does not take us back to the beginning, not back to the garden, it takes us forward in which garden and city are brought together. In other words, the Bible moves us forward to something far more grand and beautiful than we even have in the beginning of human innocence, something bigger and better. You may know that C.S. Lewis wrote a, a famous book called The Problem of Pain. Uh, I think the last chapter of it is the most fascinating in which C.S. Lewis writes about simple good, simple evil, and complex good. And he thinks complex good is the best kind of good. Now, what is simple good? Simple good are obvious elements of pleasantness in life, right? Sunsets, vacations, non-whining children, cute babies, deep-fried Twinkies. Um, simple good. But then there's simple evil. Examples of obvious unpleasantness. Starvation, abuse, abandonment, addiction, etc. What is complex good? Complex good are things that started out good, were corrupted by all sorts of different negative factors, but then, through redemption, become amazing and beautiful. Better than they ever were, even in their innocency. This happens, by the way, in the Silmarillion. Some of you know that text. Many people have pretended that they've read it. Uh, I, I got through eight pages, but um, the Silmarillion is uh, Tolkien's creation story, his the great epic. And in the beginning, there's this God figure who really sings the world and existence into being. There's all this beautiful music that produces everything. And one of the things that it produces is this dark angel, it doesn't start out dark, but named Melkor. Melkor becomes the satanic figure who starts to deliberately play discordant notes to ruin the symphony. But what does the God figure do? Allows Melkor to do it. 
and then envelops the new discordant notes of Melkor into an even grander, vaster symphony, so that the symphony is even better now than it ever was in the beginning. And that is what the new garden is like. The new garden in the new city is even better than the original. And that's often true with us, you know, because uh, we uh, start off, because of our families and our uh, cultures, we start off somewhat rooted, somewhat guided, but for a variety of complex reasons, uh, we decide to go out on our own and uh, really reject all of the wisdom that we were given until we get too hurt. And then we have a reckoning with God and we realize what real love is and real forgiveness is. And then all of a sudden our humanity starts to expand and we start not only to heal, but we start to become veritable portals of healing for other people. And that's complex good. And the Bible ends with complex good. So we have the former garden, the funeral garden and the future garden. And that's the Bible story. Uh, from those three gardens. And so I just want to make a concluding remark about our place, because what is our place within this grand epic? Because we live between two gardens, right? We live between the funeral garden in which Jesus accomplished his work and the future garden, and we're not there yet. Well, I think this is it. The ultimate gardener, when he claims us by his death and resurrection, puts us back in the garden to tend the creation. Martin Luther famously calls this the, the royal return to the earth, where human beings forgiven, absolved, justified, sanctified uh, before the throne are placed right back into creation to do a little good before or with God for eternity. You may have had to read Voltaire's Candide. If you haven't had to read it, I still suggest that you read it because it's a, it's a, a novel of satirical misadventures that sort of makes sense. Um, and, uh, and, and Voltaire's character Candide at the very end of the novel figures out the meaning of life, at least in his way of expressing it. And he says that we must cultivate our garden. We must cultivate our garden. And that really was Adam's original vocation to cultivate things so that they would become beautiful as well as practical. Other than discovering the love of God, this is our destiny. This is our dignity. This is what we were born to do, is to bless the world with beauty and practicality. So let, let me um, offer a few words about beauty and practicality, because some of us lean in one direction and some of us lean in the other direction. The trick is not to dismiss people who lean in either direction, because some of you are are more beauty-oriented than practicality-oriented, right? Some of you play the guitar beautifully, or you can write poetry, or you read Wind in the Willows to Children, or you cook exquisite pork roast, or you have an eye for fashion and design, um, like me. Others, no, that's a joke. Others, I'm glad they give you an outfit with this gig, or I'd be in a lot of trouble. Others um, tell great stories and capture attention with beautiful language. Some of you write gorgeous letters because I've received some of them. Um, and some of you visit elderly people in nursing homes so that they know they won't be forgotten and you remember their birthdays. And a few of you can teach the wonders of chemistry or biology uh, with this contagious enthusiasm that makes people fall in love with your subject. And many of you can like network. You're like spiritual networkers where you can connect people who normally wouldn't connect so that they would discover a new bond and a new friend. And some of you are brilliant listeners and you really do take in the, the data of people with problems so that they can excavate their own answers. 
but you bring beauty to the world. Others of you are very practical. You know, maybe you can perceive crises or problems in organizations and you clarify what the problem is and you create reasonable solutions that work for people. And some of you can design like safe, gorgeous architecture. Others can take like frantic family schedules that um, create anxiety disorders and you turn them into something approximating order so that everybody is less exhausted. Maybe you know how to plan a dinner party for 38 people so that everybody has a relaxing and enjoyable time. You know, some people are so practical that they understand the way that the brain works and they can explain the neurological patterns and pathways to people or prescribe the right kind of medication for those who are struggling neurologically. Uh, Some people can build bridges so that they don't fall down. Not in Pittsburgh, but in other places. (laughs) In other places. And some of you, I've yet to meet you, can plant herb gardens and make sure that the basil doesn't constantly die. I want to talk to you after the service. But some of you are so gifted practically, and some of you are so gifted in terms of beauty. Um, But I think that's what we're called to. As We are called to this dignity, this human dignity, as curators of the world. That's what you are. You're a curator of the world, cultivating that original Edenic harmony and dignity. And I think that's God's design for us. The master gardener makes us gardeners in the garden of the world. So the beautiful... And the practical, while it may be our design, the sad thing is between the funeral garden and the future garden, those things are not unthreatened. They're always under threat. Under threat by thorns, that is by outside dark choking influences, and by snakes, that is temptation and evil. By the way, the worst snake you'll ever face is not outside you. It is wrapped around your own heart. But as we cultivate this garden and seek to tear out the thorns and to stomp on the serpent. As we do these things, friend, we become human. We become more and more the image of God that we were designed to be. And as we do this, embracing practicality and beauty so that harmony can emerge, as we do this, we give people a visual reminder of our original home and a foretaste of what is to come. So the novel The Secret Garden... It is all about the walking wounded who become whole. Mary has her temper. Archibald, the aged widower, has his regret. And his son Colin is sickly. But as these characters encounter this garden, they all get well. Mary loses her rage. Archibald loses his regret. And Colin loses his wheelchair and gets up and walks. The final scene, which hints at our future hope, goes like this. Colin walks to his father, lays his warm hand on his father's arm, and says these words to him. So beautiful. Aren't you glad, father? Aren't you glad because of this garden? I'm going to live forever. Mr. Craven puts his hands on both of the boy's shoulders and holds him and says, well then, take me to the garden, my boy, and tell me all about it. Amen. Realized they took your life, they could not.